Hello, this is Nicola Torbett coming to you from the unceded Ohlone Territory, now known as Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE, and specifically, SURGE Faith. This is the podcast where we put the Christian lectionary scriptures for each week into conversation with the realities of our times, realities of colonization, racism, and white supremacy, of patriarchy and misogyny, of homophobia, xenophobia, and ecocide. And we ask what it means in this environment of dramatic inequity to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's important to say that this podcast is targeted toward white people. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. We welcome feedback from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. To start out, I have a question for you. How do you react when someone expresses anger about a form of oppression that you do not experience? Maybe that your group actually benefits from. Not how are you supposed to react? How have you been taught that you should react? But how do you really react? What happens in your body? What is the first thing that happens? And then what happens next? What happens in your mind as a response to what happens in your body? I've been working to slow this process down in myself to notice when I'm having a bodily response, which might feel like heat or tension or even rigidity almost to the point of paralysis. I've been trying to bring compassionate awareness to my bodily response and consciousness to what my mind wants to do in reaction to these sensations, sensations that I might name as shame, defensiveness, denial, or anxiety. What kind of story my mind wants to draft about the person expressing anger, about myself, about the situation, I'm trying to slow all this down so that I can access what I know about the realities of systemic oppression, rather than to react from uncomfortable physical sensations. In those uncomfortable first moments of hearing someone's anger or anguish, because often it is both, I want to be able to access wisdom. Proverbs 1 gives us an opportunity to hear from women wisdom herself. Now, I know progressive Christians don't often preach from Proverbs, and there are some good reasons why. It's theologically thorny, for sure. There are parts of this text that seem to imply that if we just adhere to wisdom, then we will prosper. This misappropriation of ancient wisdom, and I do believe it is a misappropriation, is a big problem. It suggests that people wouldn't be suffering if they were doing things wisely, if they hadn't done something to deserve it. Poor people, sick people, disabled people must be ignorant or foolish, obstinate or lazy. This is, of course, a narrative that the right wing has seized upon. It's utterly familiar to us from their efforts to slash our social safety net, totally ignoring the systemic causes of poverty. Like I said, this is theologically thorny stuff. Rather than avoid these theological tangles, though, I think we need to move toward them. We need to wrestle with them alongside our folks, because after all, we are being exposed to them all the time anyway, 
They are woven into our public discourse. And so when we offer no meaningful counter-narrative from the pulpit, we do a grave disservice to our congregants and to everyone suffering from systemic oppression. So with that in mind, let's turn to Proverbs 1. This is Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 33. Wisdom cries out in the street. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, have stretched out my hand and no one heeded, and because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon my name, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and be sated with their own devices. For waywardness kills the simple, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure." and will live at ease without dread of disaster. I've been wondering what happens if we hear that first verse, wisdom cries out in the street, in the square she raises her voice, and imagine black women calling out, black lives matter, or Latinx femmes chanting, up, up with liberation, down, down with deportation. If we imagine those women who pressed into the congressional hearing room to yell out, be a hero, vote no, or gender nonconforming people interrupting a speaker to insist that we not misgender them. I'm curious about how we picture woman wisdom and why, what we imagine her calling out and why. It is interesting to me that woman wisdom speaks out in the streets and squares, at the busiest corner and at the entrance to the city gates, a spot where sources tell us justice was often administered. She is very much in the public realm here, in the marketplace and in the courts of law, suggesting that she is concerned with matters of justice, including economic justice. In fact, in First and Second Samuel, there are four instances of wise women being sought out to mediate in matters of social and economic justice. It's interesting to me that woman wisdom is gendered as feminine and that her voice is heard in public. There are scholarly theories about wisdom's feminine gendering. Some suggest that her gender is simply a function of grammar, that the Hebrew word for wisdom is feminine. But that seems to be a bit of a circular argument. Why, after all, is the word gendered feminine to begin with? Others suggest that woman wisdom is patterned after Near Eastern goddesses such as the Egyptian Ma'at, 
the goddess of justice. More recent archaeological evidence suggests that ancient Israelites also worshipped the Canaanite goddess Asherah, and that descriptions of Yahweh took on attributes of this goddess as her worship was suppressed. Lending credence to this argument is the fact that woman wisdom in Proverbs 3 is associated with the tree of life, and Asherah was the goddess of trees. It's this last theory that is ringing most true, or at least most interesting for me, as we approach this text today. The theory that woman wisdom is a kind of persistent eruption of the divine feminine as a protest against efforts to suppress her to appropriate her power in the service of a masculine-gendered god, a move that served to consolidate power for the patriarchy. It does not seem like much of a stretch, then, to associate woman wisdom's voice with the voices of the modern-day women and femme prophets, who cry out from the street corners, the public squares, and the hearing rooms. So often it seems that the wisdom we really need, which is not necessarily wisdom we are willing to hear, comes from voices that the dominant culture wants to suppress, to silence or discredit, in order to consolidate or preserve power. I've talked in a previous episode about that exercise we sometimes do in anti-oppression workshops, that step-up, step-back exercise, in which those with the most privilege end up at the front of the room, and those with the least in the back. And I've asked on this podcast, as I do in the workshops, Now, who can see more of what is going on in the room? Those at the front, with their noses pressed to the wall, or those at the back? I continue to believe that in matters of justice, those in the back of the room, those who have the least privileges, have the best vantage point from which to name the dynamics at play and chart a path to a different kind of future. That means women, people of color, poor people, and queer people, especially those who occupy the intersections of those identities. That is where wisdom will come from. These are also often, not coincidentally, the hardest people to hear. Hardest because their voices are suppressed. Hardest because what they are saying is so challenging. Hardest because the first reaction of those with privilege is to be offended by what they are saying. Woman wisdom challenges the part of us that does not want to hear what she has to say. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? She asks how long we will continue to pursue our own interests without regard for her wisdom, and she prophesies that our willful ignorance will lead us to calamity. Because I have called and you refused, have stretched out my hand and no one heeded, And because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. It's this last part, this part about calamity, that is the central focus of the chiastic structure of this poetic passage. Now, just as a reminder, a chiasm is an ancient Hebrew poetic structure in which a series of ideas are expressed and then repeated in reverse order, often with a new idea sandwiched between the repetitions in order to emphasize it. In today's passage, the central focus of the chiasm 
are verses 26 and 27 about calamity. It's a chilling emphasis, to be sure. There is an inevitability to the calamity that results from not heeding wisdom. This inevitability stems from the notion that wisdom is the very stuff of which creation is made. In Proverbs 8, we learn that woman wisdom was present with God at the creation of the world. In that chapter, and also in the Book of Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon, we hear that wisdom pervades all things, that she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. That's chapter 7, verse 25. That she reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. Chapter 8, verse 1. It seems as if wisdom is the essence of creation, that she is the stuff even of which creation is made, an ordering principle of the universe. So to go against her is to go against the order of creation, and that will inevitably lead to catastrophe. We actually know this is true, right? We need look no further than the current climate crisis. Now this passage is part of what gets interpreted as prosperity theology. The idea that those who follow wisdom will be rewarded with safety and ease and well-being. You can see the last verse of Proverbs chapter 1. And those who do not heed her will be visited with calamity. But the prosperity reading really only applies if we are thinking in terms of individualism, a contemporary idea, and an idea that was unheard of in, in antiquity. We have to remember that the pronoun you in scripture is almost always plural. Our responsibility for heeding wisdom's counsel is collective, not individual. And the calamity or ease we experience based on whether or not we do heed it is also collective. And from the looks of things right now, because we have not honored creation's wisdom, its ways, its limits, we are headed straight for calamity. And in the face of this calamity, this distress and anguish, woman wisdom will do what? She will laugh and mock. Oh boy. A lot of ink has been spilled over these lines, which strike a lot of commentators as cruel. Maybe especially white male commentators, though I haven't done an exhaustive study of that. This interpretation of woman wisdom as mean is interesting to me, since the same kind of uncompromising resolution is uttered by God, understood to be male, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, without producing nearly so much angst or hand-wringing in commentators. There's something about a woman mocking humanity, mocking us, laughing at us, and failing to comfort us, that is particularly offensive to readers. It seems we expect women to take care of us no matter what, to endure all our abuse and to coddle us anyway. And woman wisdom states her refusal to do this. She refuses codependence, insisting instead that we have made our choice to ignore her and now we must endure the consequences. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and be sated with their own devices. She does not mince words, it's true. She is angry. And this week, I don't know, 
Maybe it's the effort to strip Serena Williams from her dignity. Maybe it's my own experience of the prohibition on women's anger. Maybe it's how this prohibition often renders white women like me mute in the face of injustice toward me or anyone else and prevents us from showing up as the allies or accomplices we want to be. Maybe it's how the prohibition on anger makes me cry when I want to blast, how it encourages me to deny my body and relinquish my power, to exchange it for the protection of men who are allowed to express anger much more freely and even violently, especially if they are backed up by the state, like police, or by money, like CEOs, or by religion, like homophobic pastors. Or maybe it's how, for black women, this taboo on the expression of anger can cost far more than a tennis match or even a sports career. Think Sandra Bland, killed because yet another man could not handle a black woman asserting her rights. But this week, I think we have to talk about this dynamic, this expectation that women endlessly take care of men, this expectation that people of color endlessly take care of white people because the cost of not doing it is too high, and this expectation that women and femmes of color especially take care of everyone else. This passage in Proverbs is a foghorn blast, a warning bell, a fire alarm crying out, this is not the way. And if you continue to ignore that this is not the way of the created universe, then catastrophe will come upon you and there will be no help. It's actually not mean to say so. It's just real. It's just caring, actually, loving, even. There is no help from wisdom because the more we go against the grain of creation, the more we stretch her fabric beyond its capacity, the more we find ourselves in the position of defending the undefendable, and the busier we are with that futile enterprise, the less available we are to hear her voice. That's why she seems not to be speaking to us. It's not that she's not there, still crying out. Just like God, wisdom is still speaking. But we are too preoccupied, shoring up our unjust bulwarks to hear her. She is still speaking to us, but we are too busy defending against her. We hear woman wisdom in this passage as angry, and certainly when we think about how she has been treated, she has every right to be. This anger is not mean, It's actually quite vulnerable. Isn't it interesting that we think of vulnerability as maybe tears, grieving, maybe even fear, but not anger, when in reality, this kind of righteous anger makes the one giving voice to it very vulnerable, especially when she is a woman, especially when she is a woman of color, especially when she is a black woman. Think Serena Williams. Think Sandra Bland. Think of all the countless black women and femmes whose names we do not know, whose righteous anger has cost them work, careers, relationships, even the most minimal protection that might have been afforded them, and even their lives. I think woman wisdom is problematic for so many white male commentators, not just because she's a woman, and not exactly because she's angry but because she does not conform to the ideals of what patriarchy expects and demands a woman to be. She is not meek, mild, unassuming. She does not take care of men. She is a bold prophet speaking truth to power. 
In this sense, it is appropriate that she is almost never referred to as Lady Wisdom anymore, or Dame Wisdom, as she once was, because those terms suggest a genteel, refined character. In other words, someone who has exchanged her power for prosperity and the right to be financially supported and protected by white supremacist patriarchy. Woman wisdom is not feminine in this traditional way. Instead, what we really have here, I think, is something like femme wisdom, not woman wisdom. The difference between feminine and femme is that femmes perform femininity not for men, not for the patriarchy, but for their own pleasure and the pleasure of other women. Femme identity is about joy for femmes. It's empowering in a way that traditional femininity can never be. It is also offensive to the powers that be. Femme wisdom calls out to us still from the street corners and the city gates. We hear her in front of the White House, outside ice processing centers, in bank lobbies and congressional hearing rooms. This week in the Bay Area, we heard her loud and clear outside Governor Jerry Brown's climate summit. The song we sang at actions all week long went like this. The people gonna rise like the water, gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great granddaughter saying, keep it in the ground. That's from the Peace Poets. The question is, will we turn from our busy preoccupations and heed her wisdom before it's too late? I pray we will listen to Femme Wisdom. Amen. As our first commitment this week, if we do nothing else, can we work, friends, on our capacity to hear anger that is directed at us? What kind of spiritual resourcing does it take to be able to receive righteous anger, even anger directed at us, as the gift that it is, an expression of trust and vulnerability that is actually at least as emotionally risky as the expression of grief? I admit, I don't fully know how to do this. I once offered a very uncomfortable workshop in which I had white people practice staying present while a partner screamed at them. I have to say it didn't go all that well. Many of us were so uncomfortable expressing anger that we ended up giggling in the middle of our tirade. Others dissolved in tears at the first hint of a raised voice. And anyway, it's hard to simulate the experience of receiving real-life anger in real time. Still, I think that this capacity to receive, hold, and even welcome anger is one of the most important spiritual muscles we can develop. So maybe this week, try to notice when you feel defensive. Is someone expressing anger toward you or toward a group to which you belong? Notice how you feel in your body. Notice what your brain wants to do with those feelings and try, as you slow this process down, to turn instead toward wisdom, 
to welcome her in, to thank her for her vulnerable expression, and to listen to what she asks of you. I also want to encourage you to educate yourself about what queer Black feminist Moya Bailey has named misogynoir, a form of misogyny or the hatred of women that specifically targets Black women and femmes. Many Black women and femmes and their allies feel that it was misogynoir at play in the U.S. Open finals. I'll link to some good resources in the transcript. Finally, I want to encourage you to learn about Hand in Hand, a national network of employers of nannies, house cleaners, and home attendants, their families and allies, who are grounded in the conviction that dignified and respectful working conditions benefit both worker and employer. This organization envisions a future where people live in caring communities that recognize all of our interdependence. To get there, they support employers to improve their employment practices and to collaborate with domestic workers to change cultural norms and public policies that bring dignity and respect to domestic workers and all our communities. Hand in Hand works closely with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and they are currently organizing a campaign to end funding for private immigration detention centers targeting Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan banks to withdraw funding from corporations that are profiting from immigrant detention. There will be a coordinated day of action on September 22nd, and folks are encouraged to organize playdate protests at local branches of these banks. I'll link to lots more info on this campaign in the transcript. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know what you think and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages, and be sure to tune in next week for another Liberation Word. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.